Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite. This is a podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and as usual, I'm going to be giving you a full breakdown of a film that I find really interesting from the 21st century. This week, we're going to be looking at Steven Spielberg's 2001 film, AI, Artificial Intelligence, which I'm going to refer to as AI from this point forward to not bear repeating the entire name of the film over and over again. The origins of this episode really come from a conversation that I was having with a previous guest on the show, Ed Drake, who was on to talk about his screenplay, The Young Woman. And we were talking about a project of mine that I was writing, and I shared with him the outline, and Ed asked me about the fact that it was written in three acts. And he suggested that uh, writing in five acts might work for this particular story. And this got me interested and I started to educate myself a little bit more on the difference between three acts and five acts because I had heard that they were related but I wasn't entirely sure how that functioned together and so really what I wanted to do with this episode is bring you some of the information that I've learned as I've been researching this and also look at AI as a film look at it from that structural perspective but also about what it tells us what that story is all about and in order to do that, I think we need to go back and look at Pinocchio as well, the 1940 Disney version of Pinocchio, the classic fairy tale, and what it was saying about the human condition and what AI does to reinvent it for the age of computer technology. And yeah, we're going to get into that shortly in this episode. So the overall structure that I'm going to be aiming at is this introduction, then I'm going to talk a little bit about acts and act structure, then Pinocchio, then we'll look at structure and how that applies to AI, and then do the full comparison of the film AI against Pinocchio, and look at what AI is about as a film. Thank you again for continuing to support the show. If you do enjoy this version, which is just me talking into the microphone, and you find it valuable, please do let me know. I'll be interested to try and give this another go. Obviously, this is the first time I'm trying this, and I, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. But yeah, just send me your feedback on the social media. Looking forward to hearing from you. And without further ado, let's get on to the episode. All right, so I want to begin with the idea of act structure and how that applies to dramatic works of art. So we're going to begin with what is an act and what traditionally has been done. So at its most basic premise, the act is the beginning, the middle, and the end. That's traditional three-act structure. Obviously, a story has a lot more to it than just this, but in the general sense that we as, a, as an audience will divide up stories that we consume we're going to begin by talking about it in terms of beginning, middle, and end. And this means that there's always going to be a way that you can view a story through that lens, through the idea of being in three parts. And this is obviously very typical and in, is the generic way that we would talk about stories when we're watching them with our friends. You're leaving the cinema, you're talking about it afterwards. You're probably going to talk about which parts of it oh, I didn't like the ending, or I really liked it at the beginning, but then it really fell off in the second act or in the middle. 
And, that, and that's kind of what we're going to be looking at in terms of this as structure itself. Now, the ideas of structure go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, who were, aside from philosophers, expert dramatists as well. And many of their plays have been preserved and are still studied in classic courses around the world today. The ancient Greeks would divide the acts up, literally divide them up, with musical interludes. So the musical interlude itself would be that the actors exit the stage, the musicians come on, they play, and then the actors resume the stage. And that really set aside these strong divisions in the dramatic works. Now that isn't something that happens anymore, especially not in the realm of film. But we do still have occasional breaks. We might mark them with an actual interlude that happens in very long films of, let's say, about four hours. You tend to get an interlude in those. We still have interludes in play, stage productions and plays. And alternatively, in the world of film, we also use title cards. Now, when I last watched AI, the thing that stood out to me was that there was something slightly unusual going on in terms of the story structure. It's still traditional in many senses, and Spielberg obviously is recognized as one of these masters of traditional storytelling, or at least the way that we call the traditional Hollywood model, which is very much a hero's journey type of storytelling. However, there is definitely something a little bit different about AI, and you can kind of feel it when you watch it. There is something about the pacing, and there's something about the rhythms of the film that make it not seem to be particularly organized around beginning, middle, and end. And my initial thoughts when I was watching it is that it's in five acts. In doing some of the research for this episode, I found breakdowns of AI that were seeing it in terms of being in three parts, and I think those interpretations are completely valid as well. So I think what we need to remember as well when we're trying to put a structure onto certain stories is to think that this might just be our way of analyzing it, but it might not be what's really happening. And I think there is a truth behind some of these things, but we need to really dig at it and, and try and test our assumptions. What I think is really happening is that when you test the assumptions of the three-act structure on AI, you find it comes up short, and that's why I'm suggesting five-act structure as being the answer to what's really going on. But maybe others would disagree on that. And so what I've ultimately decided to do is let's try and not rely too heavily on the terminology and the definitions, considering that these might serve to obscure more in this case than to provide us with any further light. If it looks like we're going down a dead end, we're going to stop and not worry too much about these definitions. But just loosely talking about it we're going to think of it in terms of this has a structure, but it won't be clearly demarcated like the ancient Greeks coming out and playing their music. But I do think there are signs within AI of when an act is beginning, when it's ending, how long it lasts. And we're going to look into that a little bit. Now, AI is a story about a young robot boy named David who is assigned to a family which is essentially grieving because they have a son who is in a coma. And the doctors are unsure when their real son, their biological son, Martin, will recover, if he ever will. 
And so, essentially, the father of the family, Henry, he works at a robotics factory, and he is chosen, due to his personal circumstances, as being the test case for David, who is a newly designed robot child. The overwhelming theme all the way through AI is what is the nature of consciousness? What is the nature of being real? What is selfhood? Can machines aspire to selfhood? Can they aspire to being real like human beings? And how will we act and how will we treat them if they do reach the level of being real? Another episode we've done of the podcast in the past is Ex Machina, which is Alex Garland's answer to this question as well. Also a very, very powerful film. And I think films that deal with these powerful questions, these big questions, are always going to be interesting if they're handled well. One thing I've read about AI in particular is that this is a film that maybe, and you've got to remember that the reception to AI wasn't entirely overwhelmingly positive when it came out, but maybe this is a film that will get better with age. And I think we're seeing this 20 years after its release already with the advancements we've seen in technology. Now it is completely normal to have these mimicries of uh, artificial intelligence in our homes that we've got Siri, we've got Alexa, we've got Google Assistant, these these voices that you can communicate with. Essentially, you're just inputting a command into a computer using verbal commands instead of written commands. But there's still something going on, this, this introduction of interaction and communication with artificial intelligence, essentially, is growing day by day. And there's a valid argument to be made that Steven Spielberg's film might mean more to people in the future than it currently does. That's a thought to take a step back from and just ponder for a second. This film might mean more to people of the future than it does to us today. And I think why it really works, why it's so powerful, is because it's based on this mythological motif and is based on Pinocchio. So let's take a look at Pinocchio to begin with. Let's ask ourselves the question of what does it mean to say that AI is based on Pinocchio? Because when you watch these two films, they are very, very different. Most of its identity is taken from Brian Aldiss's short story, Super Toys Last All Summer Long, which is a short 3,000-word short story about the basic premise of kind of the first act of AI. So in the short story, you have the main characters of Henry, Monica, David, and Teddy. And it's really just an exploration of, it's, it's, it's kind of opening up the themes that we're going to discover get handled in much more depth in, in AI itself. This is about what it's like to try and replace a human child with a robot child and what that child might experience, the robot child might experience as being asked to fulfill that role and whether the relationship between the humans and the robots really can be kept stable. Then a lot of the story that becomes the real narrative behind the film ultimately comes in terms of its relationship with Pinocchio and reinventing ideas that are present throughout Pinocchio. Pinocchio is one of those films that 
and stories, which is just an absolute classic. It's something that children the whole world over experience and, and hear. So Pinocchio is that story about that little puppet whose nose grows when he tells a lie, right? It's a kid's story, but it's not just a whimsical tale about a character that is intended to entertain children. Pinocchio is a deeply moralistic tale, and it deals with the question of what it means to be real, which from our perspective as humans is to say, what does it mean to be human? AI is seeped in this question thematically from beginning to end. So firstly, I want to explore what the story of Pinocchio actually is, and then I think it will be possible to draw these comparisons with AI and how AI goes beyond Pinocchio. And here I'm specifically referring to the 1940 Disney version, because I believe that is the version that Spielberg, as an American director, operating in the same level of cultural influence as Disney, chose to directly reference in the written story. In the visual language of the film, he uses the Italian version of the story from the late 1800s. And that, of course, is also relevant to include, but I think in terms of there's, a, there's an understanding that the audience's reference point is more likely to be the Pinocchio of the film. One of the obvious examples of this would be the inclusion of the Blue Fairy, which I believe in the original Italian version is the Grand Fairy. So the idea of the Blue Fairy comes from Disney and is a recognizable character, but the concept is the same. So Disney's classic fairy tales often make direct reference to their literary heritage, much like a director such as David Lean did in his adaptations of Charles Dickens's novels. That's to say, this is a classic book brought to life through the magic of the motion picture. So when Pinocchio opens up, you of course have the book itself and Jiminy Cricket standing beside it. And that's to make this link that is between this is literature brought to life, this is you entering a storybook, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with the basic premise of Pinocchio, but I'll just repeat it very briefly so that we cover it. The idea is that there is a lonely woodworker named Geppetto who carves for himself his own wooden puppet, which he wishes to bestow with the gift of life, that he wishes would come alive and be his, his son, his boy. And when that does happen through magic, through a miracle, essentially, Pinocchio does gain life, he is still wooden, he's still a puppet, and his gift of life is given to him with some conditions, and if he can meet these conditions, he'll be turned into a real boy. He then is sent out into the world and has adventures, and of course, the tale continues and continues until ultimately it ends with Pinocchio finally achieving what he's always wanted to achieve and finally becoming real. Now, one of the things that Disney, I think, draws from the original book and is one of the things that Disney loves to do, of course, is to have these animal characters. And symbolically, these animals can mean many things. So the antagonist, Honest John, in the film of Pinocchio is a fox because he's cunning and a con artist. And he can outwit the innocent Pinocchio. Foxes are also predators, you remember. But, say, Disney's Robin Hood is also a fox, where his cunning, his wit, and his creativity can be used for noble purposes to outwit the evil king. Pinocchio also features animals that are actually animals, or pets, 
I guess is a better way of saying it, such as Figaro the cat or the fish in the bowl. So these are animals that are basically at the level of animal, and they're very innocent. But they also have these animals like Honest John, who are basically walking around in clothes and acting like real characters. The most important character, of course, that is an animal is Jiminy Cricket, who is our entry point into the story. He is a tiny little thing. He is plucky and full of adventure and charm, but he is in many ways more at risk even than Pinocchio due to his small size. And his name comes from slang, which was used in the south of the United States to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain. That is to say, Jiminy Cricket instead of Jesus Christ. So it's no coincidence that Jiminy Cricket becomes Pinocchio's conscience. This ties into the traditional Christian idea that Christ is always with you, even if you do not choose to see him. And the story begins with Jiminy's choice, which is supposedly coincidental, that he has chosen to seek refuge in Geppetto's workshop that evening, the very same evening that the magic star appears in the sky. So, Pinocchio is still a lifeless wooden puppet sitting in Geppetto's workshop. Geppetto has gone to sleep. Jiminy Cricket has just entered the workshop, seeking shelter, and this star appears in the sky. Why a star? Well, let's take a look at Geppetto. He has an earlier literary parallel in the form of Pygmalion in Greek myth, the sculptor who brings to life one of his creations after falling in love with its beauty. But instead of the concept of creation and love, or eroticism, the idea of the muse or the anima, which the artist is inexplicably drawn to and besotted by falling in love with. This is a story about the idea of artistic creation as your children. Some writers may even experience both of these relationships in their work. So someone like J.K. Rowling, for example, might be seen as a mother or guardian to her creations in the Harry Potter series. And there's plenty to say about the manifestations of the erotic in the work of a filmmaker like Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Pinocchio, and later AI, are tales about parenthood as well as the development of children. There are two sides to every relationship, after all. Geppetto wishes upon a star. He is an old man, and his workshop is full of these beautiful creations, but he is alone. Of course he has Figaro, but Figaro is a cat, just a little companion that follows him around and doesn't challenge him in any way. Becoming a parent is an entirely different responsibility. He lives alone and has no wife and has no prospect of becoming a father, but he wishes it from somewhere deep inside himself. He wishes to be a father, despite how improbable that might be. The wish is almost unconscious, something he mutters right before falling to sleep. That goal, or objective, or desire, as symbolically represented by the star, the point of light in the darkness, the target that can be seen and aimed at, but is far in the distance. In the real world, we aim towards our objectives, whether real or abstract, working steadily towards them, making mistakes, correcting our path, until hopefully we reach them. In the mythological world, the goal itself might find you. This isn't as huge a leap as it might initially seem. Haven't we all at some point had some significant interest revealed to us, despite the fact we were not actively looking for it? An obvious or common parallel is, of course, the idea of falling in love at first sight, 
or discovering that you're about to become a parent. Of course, it could just be something as simple as the first time you were invited to a karate lesson, or the first time you heard another language being spoken, or any other lifelong hobby that seemingly came onto your path, and you instantly recognized it as a goal you never knew you wanted to pursue. Geppetto makes a small step of admitting to himself how he wishes Pinocchio could be a real boy, and the universe does the rest. Now we're going to come back to this idea in AI, because the idea of following the star and what the star means in terms of giving this extra gift to Pinocchio is something that plays a very active role in AI. Indeed, the Blue Fairy is probably the most significant aspect of Pinocchio's story to be carried over by Spielberg, and so it's really, really important that we get to grips with it over the course of this episode. The Blue Fairy has the power to grant the wish. In the religious traditions, this is God, or a God, or an angel, a supernatural force with the power to do miracles. In the secular tradition, this is essentially luck. Some people won't be fortunate enough to have children, some will. In myth, of course, this force is generally personified. If you personify this, it's a being that tests your worthiness before deciding, or essentially has some plan for you. The Blue Fairy. We cannot control everything in life. Your own level of superstitiousness, or your faith, or your skepticism will dictate how easily you can personify this to yourself. But in the world of story, we accept these things happen. Especially when we are children. There aren't many six-year-olds that will just jump up and declare, that's ridiculous, fairies aren't real, and give up on Pinocchio's theme. We are hardwired to believe in the personification of all kinds of forces in the natural world. This is something that rationalism has to actually beat out of us. For the time being, just remember this, we'll be coming back to this in due time. The Blue Fairy doesn't grant life to Pinocchio without expecting anything in exchange, though. His life is provisional upon proving himself brave, truthful, and unselfish. He must choose between right and wrong, and only then may he become real. This is an element we're going to see flipped a little bit in AI, but we need to see that in response to this concept. Pinocchio is a moral, instructive tale about the right way to grow up, how to behave in the world. The alternatives are offered as temptations that Pinocchio must face and resist, and the most iconic of these, of course, is his truthfulness, because Pinocchio realizes pretty quickly that when he does something wrong, it's easy to lie about it. Of course, his particular curse is that if he does tell a lie, his nose starts to grow. And so lying isn't actually as easy as he thinks it will be. This is something that the Blue Fairy basically summarizes to him, that a lie will keep growing and growing until it's as plain as the nose on your face. Essentially, the more you try and live dishonestly in life, the less honest you are, the harder it will be to maintain this and that it's important to learn this while you're young so you don't commit more and more mistakes as you're growing up. What Pinocchio is really about, therefore, is maturing, learning how to act, how to have a stable place in a family and not end up in hell. And I mean that in the psychological sense of the word hell, how to live well and how to avoid hell. I'm not talking about the religious sense of some sort of afterlife where there's a punishment awaiting. I'm talking about how to avoid hell on earth is to be properly ordered how to live correctly in the real world. 
that is something that Pinocchio needs to incorporate. He needs to integrate that into himself, and then he gets to be a real boy. We don't really ever doubt that he is human, even when he's made out of wood. Isn't that curious? But this really is a way of seeing the world that is utterly natural, even to you, even as you consider yourself right now a civilized human being. When you were a child, you picked up toys and bestowed an identity onto them, you acted things out with them, you might even have had conversations with them, and you almost certainly had them interact with other toys with distinct identities. You might not even remember this right now. But to bestow identity onto the inanimate is a deeply human thing to do. Past civilizations, and even current ones, codified behavior or religions to appease forces of nature and personified them and told stories about them, and they saw them interacting or intervening in their lives. That's where AI comes in. It looks at this area where on the one hand we have a wooden puppet coming to life and a cricket talking to him, something that you completely accept and something certainly that all the children watching this film utterly accept as being plausible, as being a narrative that they can follow. And then on the other hand, in AI you have a machine designed to perfectly mimic the appearance and the actions of a human boy and ask, so what do you think? Alive or not? In the context of story, undoubtedly alive. And in the real world? Or is story how we navigate through the real world as well? So let's cover a few last points about Pinocchio before we move on to these questions. It's a story about being, or how to be. So Jiminy Cricket is assigned the job of being Pinocchio's conscience. Pinocchio knows absolutely nothing, because he was literally born yesterday. And so to our modern sensibilities, it does seem particularly reckless that Geppetto just expects him to walk to school the next day. He's instantly led astray by the fox, Honest John, and sold to the marionette show. This is part of the moral teachings in Pinocchio. Innocents are easily exploited by others who absolutely do not want the best for them. So the importance of growing up is also to recognize the difference between danger and safety. Pinocchio, having only experienced pure safety in the world of Geppetto's workshop for the, the night before, is woefully unprepared for the real world. It's also something that's going to happen to David in AI when he's finally let out into the real world by himself. That then leads us into the importance of mentors. Jiminy Cricket starts out as a tramp, in tattered clothes, looking for warmth and shelter for the night, yet he becomes Pinocchio's indispensable mentor, always coming to him in times of crisis, though he's not always able to save Pinocchio from everything, only help him face the challenges, and when he's leading him right, he's also helping him avoid the dangers in the first place. Now in The Writer's Journey, the book by Christopher Vogler, he basically just calls out Jiminy Cricket straight away as one of the classic examples of a mentor. He writes, like Jiminy Cricket in the Disney version of Pinocchio, the self acts as a conscience to guide us in the road of life when no blue fairy or kindly Geppetto is there to protect us and tell us right from wrong. Now, AI itself is going to play around with the ideas of mentors as well, but I think it's a very, very important thing to think about in terms of story structure, how mentors play a role in a character's development and life. And you can certainly take a look at the chapter Christopher Vogler wrote on mentors if you're interested in that topic. 
One of the last things I want to say about Pinocchio is it's also important to remember that it is a father-son narrative. Because at the end of Pinocchio's task, his ultimate test of bravery and unselfishness is to save his father from the belly of a whale. To cover the meaning of that might be a little bit more than I have time for here, but it is a powerful mythological story that you'll find everywhere from ancient Greek myths to Star Wars, and Jungian story analysis is probably the best place to start looking at what this symbolizes. By far my favorite part of AI, in my opinion what transformed it from a cool idea to masterpiece, is how it reinvents the journey to the depths, which is where a lot of the Pinocchio imagery is present. And I think the reason why it's so effective and why it's such an impressive reimagining of the story is because the story is flipped from a father-son narrative into a mother-son narrative. And the difference between fathers in mythology and mothers in mythology is quite vast. And again, you can look into this with certain things like Jungian story analysis if you're so interested. All right, so basically that's my summary of Pinocchio so far. And then I want to start looking at structure and how this applies to AI. But it's just important to have this material in our heads as we're going into AI now. What Pinocchio was, what it was really doing. There's a reason why this is such a classic of children's literature and the film canon for, for children. And even this cartoon version, which is from 1940, is still a staple in the DVD collections for people with young children. And I think that's for good reason, because... It's a classic character that tells us so much and has so much depth in that story that it's actually not that evident right on the surface level. It's actually a lot deeper than probably most of us ever really recognize when we're just watching it as a kid's film. So now I want to go back into these ideas of structure and... In terms of structure, I would say Pinocchio has a very typical mythical structure, though a few parts feel a bit off at times, mostly around the setup and pacing. But for all intents and purposes, it does have that traditional hero's journey slash three-act structure thing going on. And just to clarify what I actually mean by hero's journey, I'm referring to the story structure that is essentially a single protagonist that goes on an adventure, and it has these key moments that can be literal or they can also be reinvented or symbolized in different ways during the progress of the story. But generally it starts in the ordinary world. There's the call to adventure, um, there's the ordeal, the crisis to overcome, and the ending tends to be a resurrection. You might want to look out for this in films that you're watching and analyzing is Towards the end of the film, right at the climax, do you see a moment where it seems like the character has essentially died and needs to come back to life? That is something that's very prominent in Pinocchio, is that Pinocchio carried back to Geppetto's house by Geppetto after being saved from the belly of the whale, and Pinocchio is unconscious, and the blue fairy comes down from the star and turns him into a real boy then and that's when he comes back to life so the resurrection at the end is very much proof that this is one of those typical hero's journey style stories now i think ai plays around with these ideas as well but what it really feels to me is that it's a film in five acts 
Now, who really can say how effective these interpretive lenses really are with these things? This is a way I want to see the film, and I think it's a lens which we together can look at it, although I think it's also equally justified if someone wants to see it as a, a three-act film or even a hero's journey. At the end of the day, there were multiple people working on this story originally, and then, of course, did Spielberg himself set out with a particular act structure in mind? But what I think can be said about it really is that it's bookended by these two really key sequences at a place called Home. And these are reasonably long. I would say about an hour and a half of the film, just under, is set at the home. And that means that if it really is in three acts, it means the second act is really, really, really squished in the middle much shorter than a traditional second act. If you look at three-act structure, when it's drawn out and displayed as a, a graphic, as a, a drawing, what you tend to see is a line rising up, and this is the tension, conflict, action, whatever you want to call it. The action is rising up until it gets towards the end and it reaches that point of climax at the end, and then there's a moment, a drop, conclusion, and ending. And if you think of AI, what you've got is a very flat line at the beginning. Maybe a podcast is not the best method for communicating this, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. AI begins with a flat line, and then that line raises, the action raises, and then it drops off steadily like a triangle and then it goes flat again at the end. That is why I believe it's in a five-act structure. Now, one of the arguments against viewing films as three-act structures comes from that delightfully opinionated writer who goes by the online name of Film Crit Hulk. So he essentially argues in his book on screenwriting that when he hears someone complaining that a film's problem comes from the second act, which admittedly is something you will hear, and I've certainly said this myself at various times, he would like to challenge that person and their statement and say, can you even define what an act is? What do you mean that the problem is in the second act? What even is an act? And that's a great question. And we do have a tendency to become particularly vague if we're asked to define an act. Yet writers do consciously include act structures in their work, and I think acts do have a definition. I do think they are real things, for lack of a better word, and they can be defined, although they are malleable just like any other story. And so what I think an act is, is a division of a dramatic work at the level below story, which encapsulates everything, the level above scenes, which generally take place in a single location and are shorter sequences. There are a variable number of scenes in an act and a variable number of acts in a story, if that makes sense. So it's a division within the story that then can be divided down further into scenes and then, I suppose, even further into beats, you could say, which are moments within scenes. A short theatre piece might have a single act, Shakespeare clearly divided his work up into five acts. And in the tradition of live performances, acts were typically marked out. As I've mentioned, in ancient Greece, musicians would play to signify the intervals between the acts, 
and apparently Shakespeare's acts were timed around the duration of the candles used on stage. So fast forward that to today, and act breaks can either be visible, as in the time of the ancient Greeks, or invisible. And this is the argument I really want to put forward in this podcast. In episodic TV writing, in the US for example, five acts are used in a one-hour drama, which is separated by advertising breaks. And I've actually discussed this in my writer's group because a funny thing happens because this gets mistranslated when the show is on television in the United Kingdom because the ad breaks are traditionally four, not five, in an hour of programming. So every quarter of an hour, roughly. And this disrupts the planned flow from the American standpoint, where they traditionally have a first ad break coming straight in after the teaser. In feature film, which is never interrupted by commercials, at least in the cinema, in the way it's meant to be shown, of course on television they might add ad breaks in anyway, but the act breaks tend to be invisible in feature films. This leaves them open to interpretation. And this is the grey area that we're now working in while looking at AI through the act structure lens. So occasionally, the act breaks could be marked in a film with title cards. A good example of this is Aaron Sorkin's screenplay for Steve Jobs, which was directed by Danny Boyle. And I have an episode on that one. It's actually the first episode of the podcast, which is deliberately split into three acts set in separate time periods. They're even filmed in different styles. Pulp Fiction has seven chapters, which are told in a non-chronological sequence separated by intertitles. Barry Lyndon, also by Stanley Kubrick, is told in two parts and has individual, invisible act breaks between each in those two parts. And sometimes, and I think this is the case with AI, the act breaks are handled in a way that blends both the visible technique and the invisible. Because although there are no direct pauses in the narrative flow, no title cards or announcement that we are entering another act, the visual style of the film does change. And this is really noticeable if you say, pause the film at around 30 minutes, and then pause it again around 1.30. The lighting, the tone, the motifs, this changes very significantly between the acts. So here is where I'd like to start talking about how I feel AI fits into this five-act structure. But of course, we haven't actually talked about AI yet. We've talked about act structure and we've talked about Pinocchio. So let's talk about the film AI, the story it tries to tell us, what it is, and I'll try and incorporate this act structure idea as I go. So AI begins with this opening scene, which... When you rewatch it, it's clear that the narration is from a robot from the future, setting the scene, climate change, loss of cities on the coasts, population limits, starvation. This is a very difficult world for humanity to be operating in. It's set somewhere in the future for us. And this professor, who we then will later discover is called Professor Hobby, he is demonstrating to his colleagues that robots are robots, that it's just mimicry, it's not really alive. And he also comes to them with a proposition. He suggests they build a child that can love. And from this scene, the moral question 
is brought out into the forefront and is raised by a colleague of his. She asks him, if a robot could genuinely love a person, what responsibility does that person hold towards that mecha, that robot, in return? It's a moral question, isn't it? Now, Hobby replies with, well, didn't God create Adam to love him? And this is going to be challenged by the end of the first act, this whole premise. This is about what are the moral responsibilities between people and the things that love them? Not what they love, but what the things that actually love them. And so the story is set with this couple, Henry and Monica. Henry works at the robotics lab and their son is in a coma. So there's all this unresolved grief that this tragedy, this family tragedy is causing immense upset for Monica. And I think one of the things to remember about this beginning to the story is just how much of it is propelled by the performance of Francis O'Connor as Monica and also by Haley Joel Osment as David. Their performances right at the beginning of this film really, really engage us, really drag us into this story and make it utterly compelling. So the setup basically is that Henry comes back to the house one day and he's brought with him David. He's been selected essentially by his work with this family tragedy. He's qualified to be the test subject to to try out the new the new model, David, who is a robot, a mecha, as they call it in their world, who is designed to look like a child. But there's one additional twist to this, and that is if she decides to keep David, she can follow some procedures and make him fully her child, make the robot fully act like he loves her. This is the wish upon a star moment that is going back to the idea of Pinocchio. It's also irreversible, and that's the thing that Henry has to warn her of early on. This is an utterly irreversible thing. So David is brought into that world, he's brought into that home, and it's obviously very, very difficult for Monica. Uh, She finds it really creepy to, to have this little robot in the house that looks just like a human boy. And there's things about him which kind of make him a little bit unsettling. And I really like some of these parallels that they're drawing with Pinocchio here, such as when it's time for David to go to sleep or when it's time for the family to go to sleep. David asks, would you like me to sleep now? Monica looks at her watch and she says, well, it's late. It's after nine. Nine o'clock is the moment in Pinocchio that all the cuckoo clocks start going off in Geppetto's workshop and when he starts to fall asleep when he gets tired during that night the blue fairy appears brings Pinocchio to life and then after Geppetto wakes up discovers Pinocchio then of course he discovers he's become a real boy and tries him to get him to go to sleep and Pinocchio's there lying in in the bed saying why 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 do we have to sleep and that's a really tender and endearing moment in Pinocchio and you see how these things are slightly twisted, slightly changed in AI in these really interesting ways. David can't sleep. He's this robot. And he doesn't blink. And that's the other thing that's really unsettling about him and obviously impressive and 
engaging and memorable part of that performance is just how Haley Joel Osment just has his eyes completely open in every single scene. It's just that thing that's slightly not human. It's also referred to as the uncanny valley, I believe, in in video games and CGI and things like that. Un- uncanny valley, of course, being that something is just slightly human but not quite there. And that disturbs us in, in many ways. And so this intro has this kind of full story structure, I would like to say. It's got the entry into the unfamiliar world. It, then it's got the fun and games, what you traditionally call an act two and in a three-act structure, where you play out the conflict and the premise, and then it careers towards a resolution. So what you can think about acts as being, and I do think this is a very valid way of seeing them. Some people see acts as stories within themselves. So a story that's built out of three acts actually goes through these cycles. Or a story that's built out of five acts, you have to see if those acts independently, there's a lot of transition within the narrative to to call those things acts. It's also because basically film really depends on narrative. If you don't have it, it starts to get very boring. Um, There are obviously alternatives to this. There are areas in which film can be used for artistic purposes and the observation, the experience of it is entirely the entire point. But especially in the kind of films that are made in America, narrative is everything. And so when you're writing a screenplay, you want these acts to really, really convey as much story as you can without it being overdone. Now, eventually, through the course of that narrative, Monica starts to get used to him and even starts to become a little endeared to him. And she eventually makes that decision, which is to make him her son, essentially. To He's not a replacement for her real son, and that's going to be a very important thing. But in the time period when this decision is made, she decides for herself that probably the best thing she can hope for is to have David around. And she makes this wish upon a star moment come true and transforms him irreversibly. And this has its naivety to it, but that naivety, that decision to jump into the unknown is also bravery. And so she makes a very brave decision to include David in her life. But you can never know what will happen. You can never fully understand the implications of your decisions. And this scene is masterfully done. This is one of my favorite parts of the film, aside from the later part of the film. This is when Haley Joel Osment literally transforms right before our eyes, when the final word out of the seven words is read to him that will unlock this code to make him love. All the expression can be read on his face. It's, it's basically magical at this moment. And we as an audience, I think, feel it. And this really starts to raise that question about how real he is, how real this this robot actually is, and what the nature of their relationship is. It's certainly different. It's certainly changed from this point forward. Uh, So what we have now is a conclusion, essentially. This This is a story in itself. It's about a grieving mother who reluctantly allows the robot into her home and eventually comes to terms with it, makes a decision, and accepts the robot and allows the robot to be activated, essentially, and he starts to treat her as a mother. So what you've lost there 
suddenly is all the conflict because the conflict is based on David against Monica initially. She's scared of him. There's a lot of conflict. She locks him in a cupboard, that kind of stuff. And this is why I think AI is a story in five acts because essentially what you've got there is a resolution. You actually have an ending to that first act. Now, what it's followed by is an immediate jump into something different. And that is the arrival of Martin, who is Monica's biological son, who is suddenly reawoken from his coma. He's brought back to the house and covered in medical equipment. He's still reasonably ill, but he is alive and he's back with the family. And so instantly, this thing that seemed to be resolved is actually only just beginning. And this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying that the line at the beginning, if you think about the action going on, the line at the beginning is very flat. And this is where it starts to tick upwards and the action starts to rise and rise and rise. And the whole idea of these kind of stories is to start building the action up slowly and gradually until it reaches a, a zenith. And so what we're going to talk about next is what I believe is Act 2, which is when Martin has returned. This creates this new conflict, and the conflict is between Martin and David directly. So the idea is that Monica is the mother to both of them, and the idea is that she has largely accepted David, no matter how strange it might be to her, but she's also has this unbreakable loving bond with Martin, her, her real son as well. And so I feel this is an act that's propelled largely by the conflict between Martin and David. This is when Martin is really going to challenge David's right to even be in the house, essentially. And there's this sense that it's jealousy between brothers, but it's something a bit more than that as well. He does fully reject David and sees him as a machine. Now, Martin directly at one point does say, no, because I'm real. These kind of digs that he, that he uses, these weapons that he uses against David. Um, another thing Martin does is insist that his mother read Pinocchio to them both. And they're reading the Carlo Calidi version of the story. And this story, of course, ends with Pinocchio becoming a real boy. And Martin's intention with this is to point out that this is something that cannot happen to David. This is the thing that really, really starts to upset David and leads to the incident where David tries to eat food, which is something he cannot do because he's a robot, and it almost breaks him, and he has to have all the food removed from inside and taken, cleaned off, you know, his mechanical, mechanical workings. And so that proves he's not biological, but it doesn't really prove whether he is artificially intelligent, whether he's a life form that is machine. And so a lot of this is kind of built into that idea of like, what is reality? What is real? What is a machine? What is not? But it doesn't ever fully answer our question to just say, well, of course David is a robot. You know, the story really thrives in that space where there's kind of this ambiguous middle ground, much like Pinocchio, where he's a wooden boy, but we 
feel he is a character, he has a personality, he has objectives, he has things, and we can see these things coming alive. And the question is whether or not that happens in the world of narrative, or if it can happen in real world, and what those implications might be if we create artificial intelligence. If you go back to my episode on Ex Machina in the podcast as well, I think you'll be able to find some of my thoughts on it at the time, which largely came from the writing of uh, Sir Roger Penrose and his thoughts on why we couldn't ever consider artificial intelligence as ever being real or ever being something that could actually be aspired to. But it's a really fascinating thing to think about. And it's something that I've enjoyed thinking about again by, by rewatching AI. One of the things, um, you have the scene with uh, cutting the lock of hair as well, which was Martin actually tricking David, but it's something that leads to something important later on in the story. But Henry starts to get disturbed by David's actions, and he raises a very interesting point in his dialogue with Monica, and he asks, if he was created to love... Isn't it reasonable to assume he knows how to hate? And if pushed to those extremes, what is he really capable of? Now, that is more of the question of what is being human as well. Yes, if you do have the ability to love, you do have the ability to do the opposite, to hate. Now, David is something that's programmed, but over the course of the film, we do start to see these moments where there is a negative side to love where he can be jealous, competitive, mean, um, abusive, all these things that come out of him, and it comes out of his love, and it's a really interesting area in that character. That's something to think about in, in your writing, is adding that psychological depth to characters, that it's not just one-dimensional, it's not just a flat. There's moments, for example, where David is just kind of hanging on to Monica's knee and asking, Mummy, will you ever die? And it's a really powerful and tender scene, but that's really driven by a kind of obvious, uh, straightforward idea of what a child's love for a mother is. It's also interesting to explore that area where there's a dark side to that, of the fear of how long she might be alive, the lengths he would go to protect her, the lengths he would go to do something for her because of that love is also very, very interesting. Now, the major incident in this second act is when David drags Martin into the pool after the kids hurt him. So there's a pool party for Martin's birthday, and David ends up dragging Martin into the pool basically because he's scared. Now, when this happens and obviously Martin is still recovering from his, his illness. He's not meant to be in the pool. They dive in to save him, and they leave David down at the bottom, and this really, really shows, you know, the reality, that question that was being asked. If a robot could genuinely love a person, what responsibility does that person hold towards that mecha in return, right from the beginning of the film? They are treating the human child as more important than the robot child. And it's a completely valid way of acting. Martin can drown. David cannot. Simple, simple decision. But there's also ethical questions. There's also questions about how it might be to be treated as secondary all the time, or treated as not real, or treated as less than valid. 
the decision is basically made between the parents that they're going to take David back. And once this irreversible wish upon a star moment has happened, then he has to be destroyed. He's not able to be reprogrammed. And as Monica drives him back, she decides that she can't really go through with that. She can't destroy him. And so she decides to let him out in the woods on the outskirts of the kind of business area where she's taking him back to. And this, to me, is the end of that second act. And this is when we actually get a moment reappearing from these kind of traditional story structures. This is when the whole world is shifted. This is when everything is changed for David. This is because he's just been left out by himself to fend for himself. And it's, again, another beautiful parallel with Pinocchio. In Pinocchio, Geppetto basically sends P Pinocchio off to school and just kind of assuming he'll get there. Now, this is a much more grounded idea, grounded in reality, grounded in real human emotions, but the same concept still applies. It's so difficult for Monica to let him go, but she realizes just what she's doing as well as just how weak and innocent and she says, I'm sorry I didn't tell you about the world. That's one of the last things she says to him. And David is pleading when she leaves him. He's, he asks, if I become real like Pinocchio, can I come back to you? And that's the introduction of the main dramatic question in AI. The dramatic question here is, will David get back to his mother? That's what we're hoping will happen in the film. That's the basic premise. And his way of viewing that his solution, which is a solution that basically isn't possible, is that he could do that if he transformed somehow into a human. And then we're into the main body of the story. This is basically the adventure part that comes in the middle. And in three-act structure, this is traditionally act two. But as I'm going to summarize at the end when I come to these conclusions, I'm going to talk about how I think this act structure is a little bit different, but this is where everything kind of goes out into chaos mode. You're in the opposite world, the flipped world at this point. And David basically has to survive. He's with Teddy. So Teddy essentially is his mentor from this point on. And Jiglo Joe, who we're going to meet very shortly, played by Jude Law, and is this really iconic character, I think, and is a character that might seem a bit bizarre, I think. I think, in fact, does seem a bit bizarre when you first encounter him, but is kind of the heart and the soul of the film in many ways as well, and uh, is a really enjoyable character. So there's this thing called the Flesh Fair in this world of, of AI, and the Flesh Fair is basically some mix between monster trucks and the Holocaust. I mean, it's this pretty awful place where they basically just play rock music and an audience of drunk people yells at robots and sees them blown up for entertainment. Maybe some of Spielberg's experiences from his direction of Schindler's List is coming through a little bit too strong in the flesh fair scenes, uh, especially when one of the robots says history repeats itself. But the point is quite clear, you know, that if these are genuinely emerging consciousnesses, then this is a really terrible thing to be doing, is to kill them for entertainment. 
one thing is that they supposedly have pain receptors, of course. So if, if you're hurting them and they have pain receptors, there's an ethical question there. And it's driven by this this feeling that humans are kind of being pushed out by the robots, that they are overwhelmed, there are too many robots in the world. But on the other ethical side, of course, if robots are just robots, they're just machines, then is there anything wrong with destroying a machine? We destroy cars all the time. So there's some stuff that is being played around with there. But what really does hit the entire audience at that place is how lifelike David is. And that's the sense that this emerging consciousness, this emerging artificial intelligence has reached a point where it's much more akin to humanity than it previously had been in the experience of these people. And the audience turns on the uh, the hunter, the character who goes out and hunts and finds these robots for the flesh fair, who's played by Brendan Gleeson. The, the character's called Lord Johnson Johnson, which is kind of a bizarre name. Um, but they basically turn on him and start throwing things at him. And the midpoint, for me, the midpoint of the story is this moment. And it begins with David being thrown into the cage with all the other robots and he reaches out his hand to hold Gigolo Joes. And a little girl who has just found Teddy sees him in the cage and goes and tells her father who goes to investigate and he finds that David is in fact just a robot and of course cannot really do anything to help him, cannot do anything to save him. But that meeting with Gigolo Joe primarily and the fact they're brought out onto the stage that, to me, is this big midpoint. Because, and when they finally escape, everything has changed because David has seen what really goes on in the world, how people really react to robots. He's got a new mentor in the figure of Gigolo Joe. He's reunited with Teddy, and he's able to make it out and try and find his way back to his mother. Now, there's a little parallel with Pinocchio here with the marionette show, and Brendan Gleeson dragging him out and saying he's going to put him where he belongs in show business. I think that's a really nice little nod back towards Pinocchio again. Um, but he is transformed after this experience, and it's irreversible. And Gigolo Joe, you know, he hears David's thoughts, he hears about the Blue Fairy, and he says, you know, he knows women, he's a Gigolo, and all he needs to do is get them to a place called Rouge City, and ask a character called Dr. No how to find the Blue Fairy. Now, where the third act ends, this is a bit I'm slightly unsure about. There are different points that I think could be considered the act breaks, and this is why I'm going to go back to the visual identity of the scenes. I think the visual identity of the scenes really changes when they go to the booth of Dr. No, who is played by Robin Williams, and that's obviously a wonderful thing to see again on our screens was his voice acting. And that's when the visual identity, I think, does change. Now, arguably, the act could end after they've got the information they need from Dr. No, or you could say it changes slightly before. And I think the way of figuring out when this might happen is to think about that midpoint. Think about the moment the midpoint needs to occur within Act 3. Um, I'll think a little bit more about it as, as we go through this and finish up this episode now. 
what they do by going to Dr. No is to ask these questions, and the answer to the question is possible only when they combine the categories of truth and fairy tale. And they're getting the wrong answers when they're asking these purely factual questions or even the fairy tale questions. It's when they combine the two, that's Jigolo Joe's innovation, that they get to the real answer. And I think this really goes back to this magic of storytelling idea because all of the things that I've talked about so far in terms of Pinocchio, in terms of AI, in terms of where this intersection lies between narrative and reality, the point is that all human beings are living out stories. All of us are living out stories. This is one of the insights of psychology into what makes us human, is that we have these narratives, we have these belief structures, we have these ideals, some of them we're living out that we don't even know we are. And what David is living out, and this is what's so interesting and compelling about this story, is that he is living out something that all human beings are living out, and that is chasing that star. It's setting an objective, it's setting a goal, distant, up in the sky, wherever it needs to be, and aiming for it and knowing that the road there might be tough, but I'm going to keep aiming for it, I'm going to keep going until I get there. And that, when he finally gets back to his creator, who has actually left the right answer in Dr. No, this is quite a really clever bit of the story, is that Dr. No has basically been taught to give the right answer when he's asked about the Blue Fairy to direct David to Professor Hobby. And so when he gets there, Hobby reveals to David that he has basically passed the test. Hobby is kind of a reversed version of Geppetto. If you think of Geppetto as the ideal father, the one who really wished he could have this son and raise him and basically carved him out of his own love and put that love into the creation. Well, Hobby created David knowing much of what might happen. Hobby created David to profit. He did want to test the potential of human science and all of this kind of stuff, but at the end of the day, he is a false version of Geppetto. He's an opposite Geppetto. Now, what Hobby reveals, though, when David makes it back, David finds another David machine there and kills it. And that reveals some of that jealousy, that drive, some of the darker side, the, the opposite of love, what, what it causes him to do. But we come back to this idea of wishing upon a star, what that star means, what it means to be human. And Hobby reveals that David has passed the test. It's a very different test to the test we get, for example, in the film Ex Machina, where the test is to see if it's the Turing test to see if we believe that what we're communicating with, even if we know it's a machine, if we believe it's human. Now, the test in AI, and this really ties into kind of the magic of storytelling, is where would David's self-motivated reasoning take him? So the Blue Fairy 
And this is a bit that uh, kind of bothers me a little bit about uh, Professor Hobby is that he is a little bit too skeptical of the magic that is within every person, I think. Because he says, the blue fairy is part of the great human flaw to wish for things that don't exist, to chase down our dreams. And actually, I think that's a slight misconception. It's kind of got that scientific mindset misconception to it, which is that this is in some way a flaw. It's not really a flaw. It's what makes us human. It's what we really live for. It's what we are. It is this ability to drive ourselves to achieve our full potential, to do so much with our lives. That is what it also achieves. It's not just the ability to believe in fairies in the sky. It's certainly a sub-function of it, it's a, or an alternative function of having such a, a way of being built. But at the end of the day, that is how we are built. We are objective-driven. We are creatures that can take aim, target. Things like archery are just utterly compelling to human beings. To, to take aim at a target and try and hit it. These are things that, in the abstract, all writers are trying to do as well, right? Like, we're trying to to write a story that we really care about, that really encapsulates everything we want to say. And that is essentially, it begins as a wish. It begins as a star, and we aim for it, and we try and create it. So that's my riposte to uh, Professor Hobby and his <laughs> slightly uh, dark view of humanity. But again, he has seen humans uh, basically destroy their habitat with climate change and probably believe in many things that didn't need to be believed in, and he's probably become quite cynical. So anyway, the, this is where I think Act 4 starts to wrap up, and it's David is kind of left with his own thoughts. He's left, um, he sees the other boxes of David's and the female equivalent of David, which is, I believe, called Darlene, and he just sees that he's, he's not unique. He's just one of many. The first of many, as, uh, as Hobby called him. And so he jumps off the building into the sea and Gigolo Joe saves him, rescues him from the water. And Gigolo Joe's final words are brilliant, that just brilliant moment in the film. He says, as he's being taken away by the police and David is left, he says, I am, I was. This is Rene Descartes. This is cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. And that means that he's real, if he can be, if he can have lived, if he can experience. And I think something that maybe could have been explored even in further depth by Kubrick and Spielberg in, in AI is actually how our experiences make us. We're not just the biological material. We're not just the ability to, to live and to move around, but we're also a a summation of our memories and the experiences that have formed us as well. And so David, by having been on an adventure, by having these memories, by having these characters who formed him, his mother, Henry, Martin, uh, Professor Hobby, Jigolo Joe, Teddy, you know, the, they have all formed different parts of what he became. And therefore, in that sense, he is something, he has become something. So I think it was a, a nice touch to add that in for Gigolo Joe as he's kind of being led away, um, essentially, to be to be destroyed. 
David and Teddy submerge. They go down into the Coney Island funfair, and I think that is beautiful. And it also, if you if you go back and watch Pinocchio, you'll see a lot of similarity between what Pleasure Island in Pinocchio turned into, um, which is part of the moralistic tale of Pinocchio. Pleasure Island is where all the boys were sent after they'd been captured, and they're led astray by the temptation. They can smoke, drink, play pool, do all these things, but essentially they get turned into donkeys by doing so. And when they go down to the submerged Coney Island, it looks a lot like that place. And so David finds himself face-to-face with this. The, he goes through the Pinocchio uh, themed area of the funfair of the amusement park and finds himself face to face with the blue fairy, a statue of the blue fairy. And this is the moment I think of most profound depth because the star in the distance is always in the distance. It can never fully be touched. It can never really be reached. It is an objective. It is a goal. But it doesn't mean anything when you're up close to it. It's about the human experience of aiming for it. Think back to the archery metaphor again, that if you have a target, the target only means anything when you're stood many paces back with the bow and the arrow. If you go up to the target, you can put your finger on the bullseye. It doesn't mean anything. That's something that's happening here in this story. And I think it's one of the most powerful parts of it is that David finds himself face to face with something that isn't really what he's looking for. He's looking for the mythical blue fairy. And our mythical origin stories can be true. This is something that is covered by that idea of blending the two categories of question, truth and fairy tale. So when those two categories are blended, this is what you get. You get the belief in something more powerful than yourself, something to aim for, something to strive for. And it's such a powerful moment. It's a sad moment when David is pleading. He says, please, please, please make me into a real boy, Blue Fairy. Please make me real. And he stays there for 2,000 years, staring at the face of the Blue Fairy. And it's, it's a moment that really makes you reflect. It's a moment that really makes you wonder. And I'm not going to project any ideas onto this moment. I just think it's one to rewatch and absorb and to feel with it what whatever you might choose to feel. The 2000 years pass. The oceans are frozen. Some sort of miracle does happen. It might not be the miracle David was counting on, but something does happen which is that robots have evolved so far that they essentially are much more powerful, much more intelligent than human beings ever were. But they have this love and appreciation for the creatures that created them, which is very interesting. And I think Spielberg's um, approach to future ideas and alien life forms and different species from humans, he's, he's tried different things over the course of his career, from Close Encounters of the Third Kind to E.T. to War of the Worlds and this, and Minority Report as well, in a way. Um, you know, these 
these are stories that I think Steven Spielberg is exceptionally talented at telling. And in this particular version, the robots are very benevolent. They have, and they have this appreciation for where they came from. And so this link that David was an early robot, that he's a robot that had experienced human life. They treat him with pride and they want to make his dream come true. And so this is what I think is the fifth act because it actually takes a reasonably long time to cover. It's a good 25 minutes just in that final act. And that's where I feel that that action line has dropped off and it flat flat lines again. And we live in this very beautiful, conclusive state of the story for those 25 minutes. And that's where he gets to have his mother brought back. Uh, thanks to Teddy keeping that lock of hair. And the story ends with David falling asleep on that that one day. And David dreams. David sleeps. And that's where the question is left open for us. Is he real? He's dreaming. Is he a real boy now? So there you go. That's my summary of AI. And now just to talk about that structure very briefly, and then we'll conclude this episode. The structure itself is, in my view, five acts. So the first act is the story of David and Monica, which takes up approximately 30 minutes at the beginning of the story. Then you have the second act, which is the conflict between David and Martin. The third act, which is David being taken to the flesh fair and meeting Gigolo Joe and escaping. The fourth act, which is when he is able to re-encounter Professor Hobby and learn the truth about why he was created. And the fifth act is everything from the point after he's submerged and is waiting in front of the Blue Fairy that takes place 2,000 years in the future. Together, those form a structure. And one of the reasons why I think this is... Because I think you can argue that this could be a three-act structure. You have your your first act would be um, David's home life until the point that Monica abandons him in the forest. Uh, then all the way leading up to... Uh, finding Professor Hobby and going down to the depths again, and then you'd have your third act at the end, which is the, the scene in the future. But if that was the case, then I think what's happening is that the midpoint is completely out of place. So if you have two acts at the beginning, and then the third act, you can put that midpoint right bang in the middle of act three, and then it becomes perfectly symmetrical with Acts 1, 2, and the first half of Act 3 on one side, and the second half of Act 3, Acts 4 and 5, on the other side. Also, as I've mentioned, I think that the visual elements of the story start to shift between each of these five divisions, and you can really see it, you can really feel it in the story as you're watching it. So again, I think that's another reason. And so the conclusion I want to take away from this is there's a lot of psychological depth drawn from fairy tales and mythology, and I think the, there are some really, really compelling ways to write beautiful stories using these kind of Jungian premises. And 
these are areas that are really, really interesting to explore in a story. And I think one of the reasons to think about structure and is that if it creates these beautiful patterns, if it if it helps you balance the story out and dish it out in these ways that allow you to deal with different themes, different ideas, different concepts around the way, and then you find ways to link them together as um, Spielberg, Watson, Kubrick, all the writers who contributed, Brian Aldiss as well in, in his way, they all contributed in the build-up of AI into the film that eventually was released and kind of finalized by Spielberg. He's... You, you do have this this dual influence, so what you might think about Kubrick and Spielberg as they compare against each other in individual levels of originality, but they both do take pride in structure. Kubrick would even frame individual shots with this immaculate geometrical structure, let alone the narratives and I've already very briefly mentioned Barry Lyndon, which is separated into these two parts which complement each other. And you'll see a lot of structural elements in things like A Clockwork Orange, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I believe is split into four parts deliberately. There's so much that you can do by taking a step back and saying, look, I'm not just going to look at this in terms of three acts, beginning, middle, and end. That might be just too simple for me to begin with. I'm actually going to think about what works for this story. Spielberg is so well-versed in the hero's journey style of storytelling, one of the two American masters of it, along with George Lucas, that I just don't think there's any way he would allow the midpoint to sit off-center in his film. Do remember that five-act structure is still only meant to be a maturation of three-act structure. And so what it's trying to do with that is, and you can take a look at Shakespeare as one way of exploring this, but it's, it's essentially meant to give different amounts of, a lot different amounts of time into those three key concepts, beginning, middle, and end, uh, because I think it allows you to explore more because what you get in traditional three-act structures is that the films end very abruptly after the conclusion. And something like AI really revels in that space. The conclusion, the fifth act, is a good 20-plus minutes long. And that is something that a traditional three-act story usually will wrap up in 10 to 15 minutes. So there you go. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It's been an interesting process of trying to talk for this long about one specific topic. I hope you gained something um, in terms of maybe just revisiting or seeing the value in the childhood fairy tales such as Pinocchio, uh, some of the things that were going on in Steven Spielberg's AI, or just ideas about structure in general. Do let me know if you enjoyed this episode, if you want to see more of me trying to break down a specific screenplay, break down a specific story in this very detailed analytical form. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening, and I've got a good couple of episodes coming up for you in the future, and I look forward to bringing those to you shortly. Bye for now.